You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Tuesday, August 4th, 2009, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. And Evan Bernstein. Well, hello, hello, hello. And uh, where's Jay? <laughs> Jay is in Sweden hunting, hunting the Yeti. Is that what they're calling it these days? <laughs> <laughs> Swedish Yeti? Jay, we miss you. Come home soon. Yeah, get back here. Don't make us do all the work. So what do you got for us today, Evan? It was August 7th, 1926. And uh, do you guys remember the story of the midwife toad research? No. no. Probably don't. Uh, no. Midwife toad research done by Paul Kammerer was debunked in an article on August 7th, 1926, published by G. Kingsley Noble. Kammerer was a Viennese biologist who alleged his research supported the Lamarckian theory of inheritance, which is a theory that predates uh, Darwin's theories of evolution and and so forth. And predates Lamarck, too. From the uh, 1700s, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Well, in 1918, Kammerer, when he was doing his research, he claimed that in his experiments with midwife toads, he had induced nuptial pads that were subsequently hereditary. Wait, what's a midwife toad? Is that a toad that helps other toads have babies? (laughs) You'd think so. It's just a species of toad. Oh, okay. I don't know the scientific name of it. I was seriously uh, confused, and I'm sorry to admit that, but I really was. (laughs) That's okay. Now, here's the rest of the story, though. So this fellow, Noble, he was a curator uh, at the American Museum of Natural History, and he examined the preserved specimen of Kammerer's midwife toad and found that the nuptial pad had been simulated with injected Indian ink. So it was a hoax. A hoax toad. Uh So it wasn't a matter of characteristic of inheritance. It was, in fact, fraud. At the time, it set off an academic bombshell pretty big from uh, from the readings from 1926. So big that six weeks later, Kammerer committed suicide. Wow. Could not deal with the the shame and ignominity of it all. See, that's what what scientific fraud got you. So don't fake your science research, everyone out there. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) <laughs> well, let's go on to a few news items. Let's hope this one isn't fraud. Japanese researchers have published a study demonstrating that they were able to grow bioengineered teeth in adult mice. Pretty cool. Awesome. What they, what they did was they took the teeth seeds, right, the cells that would be the seeds that would later grow into teeth from a mouse embryo and planted it in the jawbone of an adult mouse and the the tooth seeds grew into functional teeth with a nerve and and sensation and everything. Was this like grown on the back of the mouse, like no, like it, the ears, uh, like no. the ears were, or this was in, in the mouth of in, the, in the, the jaw, mouse. in the jaw, yeah. wow. choppers? They were actually able to use them. Aren't they? I saw a picture, and it looked like it was glowing in the dark. <laughs> oh, really? Sure? Did it glow in the dark? I don't know. I, Maybe that was a Photoshop picture. It was bizarre. Yes, the bioengineered tooth was labeled with green fluorescence protein so they can track where the cells from the tooth germ were going. Yeah. So this is a it's you know it's actually it's, it's a nice development but it's incremental. It's this kind of technology might eventually lead to, you know, obviously replacing lost or damaged or malformed teeth. However, we have not yet identified the cells in a human embryo that will give rise to 
to adult teeth. So we have more knowledge in this area about mice than we do about people. So we could not do at this time the same thing in a person. But, you know, if this procedure works in a mouse, eventually we should be able to figure it out and, and make it work in a human. And also for other organs and things, right? I mean, this isn't just teeth. Yeah, absolutely. Can't this have applications Absolutely. And that, that's, again, further down the line. But the same concept of taking, you know, precursor cells, cells or tissue destined to later develop into an organ, transplanting them into an adult, and regrowing a liver or regrowing a heart or, or a kidney or whatever wow. it is that you, whatever organs failing or that you need to replace. Um, of course, this would be optimal if we could take, not do it with an embryo, but again, like take adult cells from yes. you, give it the properties of, of embryonic cells, get it to develop into the precursor of the desired organ and then transplant your own organ back into you, right? Mm. That would be the, the ultimate Goal. Yes, that so you, would be great. Yeah, That's you cool. would have your own organ. Steve, the article re- says here that by day 37 after the transplantation, the researchers noticed the bioengineered teeth were beginning to show and so forth. Now, so 37 days later, I mean, so what are we talking about? How long, you know, are, we gonna, are people going to have to wait for these organ farms essentially to, to grow? I guess it depends on the complexity of what, what exactly it is you're trying to grow. Yeah, and probably not as long as they're waiting on organ transplant waiting lists as it is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. These things are long and deadly. I was a little disappointed though. They didn't. The article just seemed to end, and my question was, well, what's next? This is really interesting. You know, what organs are you going to try next, and and can we transition this to, uh, like Steve said, to use uh, skin derived uh, stem cells or something like that? They just. Kind of, I, I looked around. I didn't find too much more yet. Uh, being released about this, but I'm just dying to see what they what what organs they're going to try next. I assume yeah. they use teeth. I'm not sure why. Why did they do teeth first? Was it because of their st- structural simplicity? And now they'll go to the more complex organs. I'm not sure, but wow, this really seems to have uh, some potential to it. I think they started with teeth so that they could meet the growing demand in the um, the wrapper market for growing like a fresh new grill. Uh, yeah, like phosphorescent teeth or like gold teeth. Yeah, that's big money there. Does that mean I could stop flossing now? (laughs) Wouldn't that be awesome? Grow a third pair? Get to 40 or whatever and you just grow all new teeth, start from scratch. Don't sharks have indefinite amounts of teeth? Yes, they they do. Yes, they do. And it's it's, uh, an old story with uh, the Novella family. I, I remember hearing my grandmother say years ago that she had... I think it was her grandfather that actually had a third set of teeth when he he lost Ew. all his teeth at like whatever whatever age it was a new brand spanking new set of teeth wow. came in uh, a third freak. third set and it was complete <laughs> yeah, really. I'd like to have seen his X-rays. Your but, ancestors uh, are creepy. Yeah, that's a yeah. nice one. Like I, so yeah, so so when I was at the dentist, I took, I took a close look at my X-rays. Like, damn, I don't see a third set in there. <laughs> oh wow! Bad. But you could now we might be able to do that artificially. That would yep. be awesome. Can we stop talking about teeth now? I'm having my wisdom teeth out tomorrow, and I'd like to <laughs> kind of forget about you'll it. You'll lose four points of wisdom if you get those teeth out. Oh, okay, so uh, that puts me at like oh. negative three. You going to do it without <laughs> anesthesia? Oh, yeah. I'm a, I'm a tough one. So you're tough it out? Yeah. Are you kidding, man? I'm going to be so doped up. I'm going to look like friggin' uh, Whitney Houston. That's, be- that's before you get to the office. <laughs> you don't want to put any artificial chemicals in your body, do you, Rebecca? Yeah. No, that's true. I don't. Pain is natural, yeah. It's kind of like childbirth. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. It'll be a good dry run for for the for having your children. Oh, right, for all those <laughs> awesome. spawn I'm going to be popping out anytime now. Now right. that I'm married. One more qu- a quick bit of stem cell news. This one is kind of good news. I've spoken a couple of times on the show before about the fact that there is a proliferation of fraudulent stem cell clinics popping up around the world. A lot are in China. There's some in India and even Mexico now. Uh, they'll happily uh, take twenty plus thousand dollars from you know desperate people who have incurable diseases and then claim to treat them with stem cells. Well, recently Hungary's health ministry announced that they raided a stem cell clinic, a quote-unquote stem cell clinic, that was doing fraudulent treatment. And they say that they hope that this uh, scares others from offering untested treatments and will be a cautionary tale to members of the public. Well, I hope that it is. Um, of course, yeah. you could say that about just about all of alternative medicine. Yeah, that's right? for sure. Yeah, it surprises me that it's in Hungary. I yeah. guess I always pictured them as like seedy shacks in third world countries that people went to. But Unfortunately, some of them are sponsored by like actual hospitals. And in China, the suspicion is that you know the government is happily sponsoring these mm. clinics. It brings in a lot of money and, and yeah. prestige, you know, so why not? Oh, wow, with the full weight and power of a government behind an operation like this, is that that's very scary. Yeah. Terrible. But it's good to see at least one of these clinics got raided, and hopefully it's also the first time I've seen in the mainstream, this is in Reuters, a mainstream news outlet running a story that these clinics are, you know, essentially not promoting these clinics, but saying that, hey, they're fraudulent, because the, the previously the only stories I've seen were, Going, we're discussing the fact that uh, oh, look at this kid was cured by these stem cells from this wonderful clinic in China. You should go there. You know. Yeah. Uh, Bob, you're going to tell us about the next news item about laser propulsion. Yeah, this was. Uh, I've I've heard about this before, many for many years actually. Uh, but it, it does look like now potentially that chemical rockets may have some stiff competition in the future. If uh, if Lake Marabo has his way, he's an aerospace engineer at the uh, RPI, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York in the United States. And his specialties are energy applications, aerospace systems, and advanced propulsion. Now, he sees a future uh, for non-chemical propulsion. And I hope he's right because chemical rockets are just – too expensive, in my opinion, too inefficient, and they're just not science fiction-y enough for my 2009 yeah. taste. You know, if we can't have jetpacks, we can't have flying cars in 2009, let's at least have some really wicked rocket technology. The problem we- with all of those things, the problem with rockets and jetpacks and whatever, is that you have to carry your fuel with yes, you. Yes. And whenever that- you need fuel in order to carry fuel, you get to that rocket equation where it just becomes prohibitive, you know? And this is one of the things that laser propulsion can actually deal with. He's been working on this for about 30 years. It was introduced in 1972 by Arthur Kantrowitz. And if you're not familiar with it, it's it's a form of beam-powered propulsion in which the source of energy is... Is it beam-powered? Beam. 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 As in Jim Beam. That makes more sense. (laughs) The source of the energy is separate from the reaction mass, which is what Steve was was talking about there. That's the key thing right there. Now, for chemical rockets, everything is right there. It's all right there on the rocket. But for the laser propulsion, they typically use a ground-based laser or a maser now. I recently found out that they're kind of moving more towards the microwave maser um, rather than just the regular laser. Bob, are sharks involved at any point in this process? Are they on their freaking heads? Sharks? Sharks with laser beams on their heads. Where the hell did that come from? Oh, Bob. Oh, oh Bob. 
Uh, what the hell did I miss? It didn't seem like I missed much. But you they missed Austin Powers. Austin Powers. <laughs> oh my God! Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, so they so they direct the laser or maser. They direct they direct it towards the funnel shaped craft. And inside, on the inside, there's a parabolic reflector that focuses the light to a point which heats the air. And it just kind of just blows it up. It gets to about 30,000 degrees. Uh, now, I don't know if that's Celsius or Fahrenheit, but I don't think it really Does matters it matter? because it's really, really <laughs> damn hot. So it just explodes the air, basically. And that is, that's what thrusts the rocket. That's what sends the rocket up, up and out uh, through the atmosphere. They also need nitrogen jets to spin the craft. And uh, this guy, Mirabo, is spinning it at 6,000 RPMs, which is pretty fast, but it also would make – will make the craft very, very stable. Now, obviously, this guy's pretty gung-ho about this. He told Space.com recently that typically a new propulsion technology takes 25 years to mature. It takes 25 years, historically, to the point where you can actually field it. Well, that time is now, uh, says Marabo. He's um, apparently one of the big milestones for this technology is a drop in the cost to just about a couple dollars per watt of laser energy. And he says, we're here now. It's a matter of will and do we want to do it. This technology is now at the cusp of commercial reality. All that's needed now is to actually build them. The problem has evolved from a scientific one to an engineering one. Clearly, it seems that we've passed a milestone in this research. And according to Marabo, at least, he thinks that it's really just the, uh, the engineering details now to really, to really get this thing going. Although sometimes, often, in fact, the engineering, quote-unquote, details, that's where the devil is, right? I mean, that's, that's where the problem is. That's the not dying while you've got a jetpack strapped to your back. Right. I mean, that's, that's a yeah. non-trivial aspect of translating concepts into products. And, you know what I mean, is the, is the whole industrialization and engineering part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And as a matter of fact, that's one of the, uh, one of the skeptics uh, uh, for, for light propulsion kind of alluded to that. We, he, Phil, Phil Coyle is a former top technology tester for the Pentagon. He told Wired dot uh, com last year that researchers have been trying with little success to scale this technology and that's one of the major problems and it's primarily due to major limitations of the power of the lasers the size of the craft and the limited propellants that they carry but let me uh, quickly just go into what if if Mirabo's vision comes to fruition what we could potentially see from this technology um, initially I think we could see the launching of nano and micro satellites. Um, mm-hmm. Every ever hear of nano satellites? Um, these uh, these range from one to one to a hundred kilograms. <laughs> Potentially, we could see a savings of a thousandfold reduction in the cost per pound to put this stuff into orbit, which would be quite amazing. But further down the line, Mirabo sees that we could even potentially replace commercial jet travel. Uh, people could be flown to the other side of the planet in under an hour. That's pretty damn fast. Oh. Um, I wonder if this will be ready for our Australia trip next year. I hope so. Um, <laughs> he, uh, Marabo also talks about uh, power stations in space beaming down energy to electrically propel cars and trains and even for heating and cooling. So uh, clearly this could, have, this could have some potential. But uh, I think it remains to be seen if, if, if this can happen, if it really can scale, as, he's, as he says, um, it, could, it could scale. And if it really is just the little uh, engineering details – uh, so keep an eye out for that one. This guy seems pretty confident. Uh, he, this guy clearly has uh, the expertise in the field. He's probably one of the few few people around that actually has all the expertise uh, required, you know, to 
doing the research for 30 years in this yeah. uh, la- laser propulsion. Yeah, right. But still argument from authority is still an argument from authority. Uh, but we'll see if, if this pans out. And I, I hope he's right because this would be uh, – I mean anything that could reduce launch to orbit cost is awesome in my book, especially thousandfold reduction would be awesome. I just I just want to get there. That's even a space elevator, isn't it? A thousandfold? Not that we're anywhere near a space elevator. That's, no, no, but... There are some uh, non-trivial engineering problems there. Yeah, and a space yeah. elevator wouldn't get me a jetpack. Like, that's, yeah. that's all. I don't really care about getting into space and stuff. I just want to cruise around with my jetpack. Mm-hmm. I think well, it's, you I, know, it's, it's 2009. It's high time. It's, I it is. It is. But have you seen the water pack? The water I was pack? about to bring that up, actually. I love that. And that that's only like, what, $20,000 cool. or so. But you could um, fly for quite a long time, almost as well, long yeah, as Well, yeah, so want. long as you have ocean. <laughs> right? <laughs> only over the ocean, yeah. So well, that, yeah, because like it, yeah, it like sucks up the water, right? And uses right. that as propulsion. So as soon as you like venture over dry land, you're pretty much effed. But, Re- Rebecca, yeah. what if the jetpack requires that you have to wear a, a device on your belt? You know, like a, <laughs> something small, like a cell phone. Uh, will, that, know, will, that, will that put a kibosh on it? it? I would have to seriously consider the my, my sartorial choices because <laughs> oh, I'm not. Oh, good word, good word. I'm not wearing. I'm not wearing a fanny pack. By the way, did you see the? Uh, <laughs> Utility belts that Fernanda sent yes. us. Yes, that was yes. embarrassing. Like, oh my god! <laughs> yeah, so listener, was... listener Fernanda sent us a link to uh, a company that sells what they're calling utility belts. They even reference Batman, but they're glorified fanny packs. Oh they yeah, really it are. is fanny with a capital F, and I just like saying <laughs> fanny a lot because I know it makes our Australian listeners laugh. Yeah. Or is it UK, the UK listeners? Uh, I don't know if they have the same term in the UK. Maybe they do. No, I'm pretty sure. Hmm. You're right. I'm sure they laugh every time we say I think they call pack. it a bum buddy. A in bum buddy. England. Oh. Bum, yeah, no, it is. It's bum pack or something. Yeah. But Rebecca, why would that be especially humorous in Australia? Well, in Australia and possibly England, fanny does not mean... But it means uh, same general area, but in the front of oh, a lady. Oh, interesting. Really? Well, thanks, Fernanda, but not we're not quite there yet with the skeptical utility belt, though. But nice try. Uh, quick update on Simon Singh. Remember that Simon Singh was sued by the British Chiropractic Association for saying that they are promoting bogus therapies, which is, in fact, the truth. But the English libel laws are so terrible that he is having a hard time defending himself. And in, mm. in that system, he's guilty until proven innocent. An initial decision that was passed down, I think, about a month or so ago now, put him in a very awkward position in which he had to defend the meaning of his statement about the British Chiropractic Association, saying that they deli- that they were committing conscious fraud, that they were deliberately misrepresenting their therapies, which is not what he intended to say. He was just saying that there's no evidence that their therapies work without trying to guess or infer what they actually believe. But the judge is going to make him defend the claim that they believed that their therapies don't work and promoted them anyway. Well, as we had stated previously, Simon was appealing that decision. And unfortunately, a couple days ago, uh, he he was turned down by the Court of Appeal, uh, which I actually think he was not given the right to appeal, right? You, You need to get a permission to appeal, and he was, and that was declined to him. Correct. And yeah, he has 
seven days from the time that he's served, apparently, in, in which he can make a, a decision of whether or not to ask for an oral renewal hearing. The crazy thing is, like, come on, England. This is so effed up. Not only was he denied uh, the permission to appeal, but he wasn't actually served with the denial, the, the refusal, because there was a strike on uh, the Postal Service was striking in London. And so the letters were sent out. Apparently, they were sealed on the 30th of July, but he hadn't received them. I'm not sure if he's even gotten them yet. Like, he was still waiting, last I heard on um, Monday, I think. Um, He was still waiting to receive the actual refusal. So, But once he... So this is like grapevine, sort of. Um, That's how he knows that he was refused. But once he receives the official refusal, he has seven days to decide whether or not he wants to make an oral renewal. Mm -hmm. Another option, so this is from the uh, Jack of Kent uh, blog, who is a skeptic and and I guess also a legal expert who's been following this case. And, And he says that another option that Simon may have is to challenge the notion that the British Chiropractic Association has the right to sue for libel because they, they are not a stockholder organization and that apparently corporations cannot sue for defamation. Hmm. They may be able to go that route. And as we said previously, if all that fails, he may then appeal to the European Union for a violation of his civil rights. But we'll see. We also have to see how far he can act. He's, you know, this is a very expensive endeavor to keep this going, you know, appeal after appeal after appeal. We'll see how far he can go with it. And luckily, I think that there are hordes of skeptics standing by ready to, to donate whatever yeah. he needs. Yeah. So hopefully he's able to keep going. I think that more than the, I mean, yeah, the, the costs are outrageous. Um, but I think more than that is just the emotional roller coaster that all of this has got to be, you know, mm-hmm. he, he, like the last time I, I spoke with Simon, he was in such good spirits and he's such like, he's just an awesome guy. And he was just like, no, no, no I, I'm really kind of enjoying this in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was way back at the, the very beginning. And I can't imagine that it's easy to, right. to keep going, you know, keep slogging through all this. But the good right. news is this is a PR disaster for the British Chiropractic Association. I think they may be we- oh, yeah. wearying of this process as well. And, um, you know, Jack of Kent also points out another wrinkle in this case that I had alluded to previously when we were talking about the fact that the British Chiropractic Association printed their, they came out with their, oh, here are 29 or whatever studies would support our claims. Turns out a lot of them had nothing to do with their claims, and the others were you know, a few, you know, very bad studies for each specific claim that they were promoting. You know, basically chiropractic for certain childhood indications like asthma or ear infections. And they cherry-picked. They left out the large, better quality studies that, in fact, were negative. That was a bit of deception on their part, to cherry-pick and misrepresent the literature on those very questions, which they systematically did. That actually may count against them. Just, you know, Jack of Kent is saying that Simon's actually in a better position after the BCA came out with their crappy list of cherry pick studies because that could be used as evidence for conscious deception, that, you know, cherry picking and misrepresenting the scientific evidence. So I don't know. We'll see. I hope cherry picking isn't too subtle for them to 
latch on to because that's just something that's yeah. easy just to, just to not really catch. When there's a big, well-designed negative study and you don't mention it, though, I don't know. That's, hope you're right. That's yeah. How, that, yeah, that's at least to me that's pretty obvious. But you're right. Who knows what will happen in the legal system? Well, let's go on to a few of your questions and emails. The first email comes from Aaron Kren, who writes actually a very interesting email. He writes, "I'm a Christian and I've started to listen to some of your podcasts. I also lived in Grand Rapids for a while, so I found it interesting to hear you talk ab- about the area, such as churches like Mars Hill." I visited there a couple times, but became a member of a smaller independent church. I'm listening to discover more about what atheists and skeptics believe. I figure that if what I believe is true, then there ought to be proper responses to what you believe. I find your podcast challenging, but good in giving me a greater desire to dive deeper into what I believe. I think it is true that many Christians don't have a deep understanding of their faith. I also think because it has been true of me, that Christians are often segregated in their own communities and don't rub shoulders enough with people who aren't Christians. It really is amazing to see how wholeheartedly people believe in different things. I found it refreshing to hear you say, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you don't follow the postmodern perspective that there is only one truth and that belief is subjective. It makes sense that if the whole universe relies on laws and scientific facts, that the same should also be true for issues of spirituality. I know you don't believe in spiritual things or God, but if God were real, would you say that not all belief systems would work equally in connecting with God and living the way he desires? I'm just curious as to what you would say. I have one other question. I don't necessarily mean it to be a got you question, but I am curious about what your view is. If evolution is true, where did the first particles of matter from which all life evolved come from? You've probably answered this many times, and you've no doubt thought about it and researched it as best as you can. I admit I haven't yet taken the time to research the common beliefs about the subject, but I thought this would be a good place to start. He Mentions a couple other things, but to cut it short, he just concludes with thanks, Aaron. So, I found this this email very interesting. First of all, I always like to see people branching out from their very narrow, insular, intellectual world, and you know, saying, "Hey, what do other people actually believe?" You know, rather than just accepting what you're you're told from secondary, often hostile sources that they believe, right? And Absolutely. so got to give him props for that. You know, he's listening to our show to find out what we mm-hmm. actually have to say. And, and it sounds like he's thinking about it because he says he found it challenging, which means he's not dim- dismissing it all out of hand. So that's good. I also think that his observations about c- Christians is not in any way unique to Christians. I think that pretty much every ideological community does that. But that's partly the nature of confirmation bias is that we seek out sources and opinions would reinforce what we already believe, and that could become very insular. Yeah, and the internet makes it even easier. You know, you find yeah. forums and podcasts and communities that fit whatever narrow thing mm-hmm. you're interested in. So yeah, yeah it is always good to, to hear from people who believe in something a little different. Right. And I agree with his logic in that yeah, certainly we believe there's one reality, and that's why all of science needs to agree with itself, right? Because it's, it's, it all needs to fit together. You can't have two scientific uh, conclusions that are mutually exclusive and yet both be correct. You know, if they're mutually exclusive, one or both needs to be wrong because it is just describing the same reality. So if we did live in a universe with a God, then sure, if that were part of reality, then yeah, it would, 
whatever facts there were about the existence of such a being would have to be internally consistent. And yeah, you, 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 there couldn't be mutually um, exclusive belief systems that were both quote unquote true. Of course, you know, again, the thing he, I can kind of see where he's going there, but, but he also has to accept the fact that if, if you have two belief systems that are mutually exclusive, one or both need to be wrong. So he's trying to, I think, lead himself to the conclusion that there's only one true faith. But, but you can also conclude from that, well, because so many faiths are mutually incompatible, it could be that they're all wrong, right? You also have to accept that possibility as well. But of course, this is all hypothetical. The nature of most of the ty- types of things that religions believe in is that they're not falsifiable and they're, they're matters of faith and not objective knowledge. Which leads to the big difference between science and religion is when there are two mutually exclusive conclusions in science, there are objective ways in order to resolve the conflict. You could bring you know, evidence and logic to bear in order to say that one of those views is, is correct, for example. But with matters of faith, when there is mutually exclusive belief systems, there is no objective way for resolution to resolve which one is correct or which one is better. But to, to get to his second question about where did the matter come from, we have touched upon this question from a couple of different angles before, and we do like to point out that the origin of stuff, you know, where matter came from in the universe, even and even the origin of life itself, is a separate question from the evolution of life. So once life arose, life is subject to evolutionary processes, and the evidence overwhelmingly shows that, in fact, over the last four billion years, life has evolved. Yeah, I suspect that, you know, this is such a common argument, um, or it's not even really an argument, but it's a, it's a common thing for creationists to say. And I, I wonder if it's not just a simple confusion over Darwin's origin of species. They, mm-hmm. they see the word origin and just assume that what he's talking about is the origin of life, when in fact he's talking about how do we get these distinct species? How do we get a bird and a monkey? And, uh, you know, were they at some point in the distant past connected? Mm-hmm. As, as opposed to, yeah, what is the origin of things right. that live? Yeah, and in terms of, and he's bringing it back even to the origin of matter, which goes back to the Big Bang. Right. You know, just the origin of the energy and matter that makes up our universe. And we're just starting to even think about the cosmology of, you know, we know that, uh, or at least there's a, a very strong theory with a lot, of, a lot of explanatory power and evidence to back it up that something like the Big Bang happened, the, you know, the origin of our, the, the space-time continuum, right, our universe. But Steve, another, uh, just a quick little point I'd like to say that I think we, we've mentioned this earlier as well, but the, the idea of matter and how it, it seems it just seems not to make sense that matter can appear out of nothing, but, but that's actually a straw man. Science really isn't telling us that it came from absolutely nothing. Right. Because one way to look at it, you could say that the, the positive energy of matter is equally balanced by the, the negative energy of gravity. So taking that together, the, the entire energy content of the universe is in fact zero. So in right. a sense, it's the it's a, the ultimate yeah. free lunch. But it's but <laughs> I think that's an important point because it does it doesn't necessarily come from nothing, and it's actually it's nothingness. It's it's matter and energy. When you put it all together with the gravity and matter, it really is nothing. So I guess you could say that that sounds pretty magical in itself but a lot of science yeah. does but science does uh, address that fact in, in that way and it's just something i wanted to throw out there 
you're right, but from a math, the math adds up is what you're saying. But I think right. from a more cosmological, philosophical point of view, obviously there isn't nothing. The universe exists. There's something there, and it had to come from somewhere. We, you know, we, the, fact, the fact is we just don't know. I mean, we don't have – our cosmology yeah. is not advanced enough for us to even think about, you know, where, where did – you know, why isn't there nothing and, and where did stuff come from? But the wonderful thing is that there there are scientists who are working on things that are so far beyond um, the imagination of of so many people, and that that to me is the unfortunate thing about creationism in general. Bob has a very good point in that th- these ideas are in a way magical, and they're really wonderful to yeah. to think about and and to right. to imagine. But um, unfortunately, there's this subset of the population who instead of delving into the great unknown uh, and trying to answer the questions uh, simply answer it with um, well we will never know so it must be a god or it must be something instead of um, well I don't know maybe we can figure it out and you know I remember we talked a while back about scientists who are you know trying to get a peek into what might have existed prior to the big bang and that was just so it's so mind-blowing to think that that's even plausible like that's even a something we could actually look into mm-hmm. you know we, we talked to michio kaku about string theory and membrane right. theory i mean right there that opens uh, multiple universes right you know, uh, and these are all legitimate scientific pursuits that he and his colleagues are going after it's fa- it's just beyond fascinating and it's so um you know it is very difficult to understand and to wrap your your mind around and that's the problem is this kind of argument from ignorance in a way like i it is. well i i can't understand that and therefore um no one can understand that we'll never understand that um that's the wrong attitude to have and if you're using this as an argument for why there is a god that is a, a god of the gaps argument from ignorance and uh, it, it also doesn't solve anything. As you say, it just removes it one step. So if you say, okay, well, we don't know where the universe came from, therefore it was made by some god, well, then where did God come from? Well, he always existed. Well, save the step and say whatever quantum fluctuation resulted in our universe, that always existed, or at least had mm-hmm. a, a never-ending you know, recession of antecedents. Although even more interesting is the possibility that our universe is is finite but unbound temporally, and meaning that it may not even be a meaningful question to yeah. even ask what was there before the universe. There may not have been a before the universe, even though right because time is wrapped up in the yeah, universe. Exactly, time right, might can... be wrapped up in the same way that we are our, our dimension, physical dimensions of our universe are wrapped up in that. There's no edge to it. You'll never get to the edge of the universe, but it isn't infinitely big. It's finite in size. So if there was no time, then what could have changed to cause that quantum fluctuation? Your head, your brain kind of explodes when you think about that. Well, kind yeah, of stuff. there's there's <laughs> that idea of like yeah, I shut down at that point. Right. There, I, I, there, there's that theory that there's a there's a possible universe out there that doesn't have a time dimension, and that right. our universe could suddenly flip over and become a universe like that without a time dimension. Like there is a universe out there in which Rebecca is the is the mother of twelve children. <laughs> Isn't that no, actually, unbelievable? That's, that's, that is so cool. That's this universe. I never really mentioned huh. it before, right. but but, we're, but yeah. we're hopelessly decohered from that universe, right? <laughs> Hopefully. Well, thanks. For, thanks for the question, Aaron. Keep listening and keep an open mind. Right. Yeah. 
Not so open that your brain falls out, though. Right. That goes without saying. All right. One more question. <laughs> this one's on interval training. This comes from Justin Larkham from Columbus, Ohio, and Justin writes, I subscribe to Popular Science, and perhaps my favorite thing about the magazine is the pseudoscientific advertising on the last few pages. This month, I came across an exercise machine that looks like that looks more like a Rube Goldberg device than anything else. Anyway, the reason this particular ad caught my eyes, the major selling point of the thing is that it costs $14,615. Apparently, it's worth it because you only need to exercise four minutes a day. I thought you might like to check out the site. It's good for a laugh, and I thought it might make for a fun item to discuss on the show. Four minutes? I don't have that kind of time. Yeah. <laughs> I'd rather be fat. This is, this is interesting. <laughs> I have no idea why this machine costs $14,615. I mean, that seems a bit excessive. You could buy a car for that money. Nobody... It looks like a medieval torture device. Yeah, it, it does. does. Yeah. I mean, nobody needs I mean, to be that's... spending that kind of money on an exercise machine, right? But, I mean... their, but their point, though, Steve, is that it is so effective. Four minutes that you're paying for that efficiency, and that it's worth it if you can. If you consider, why do you pay so much to fly to Florida when a bike would cost? You could pay. You could be pay less for a bike that would take you to Florida as well. But you're paying for the the time savings uh, of getting down there in a couple hours instead of uh, instead of a week. So right. that's that that's the logic that they're working with here. Is that that's why it's so expensive? That's kind of a so dubious argument. That's, Absolutely, that's, that's, a, that's ridiculous. It looks like something that Doctor No would try to saw James Bond in half. <laughs> with. But I, I will tell you though, Steve, that if this thing truly did as they claimed, and that in four minutes a day I could have maximal cardiovascular benefits and other benefits, then I I would argue that this would be worth it if it actually lived up to its claims, which is a big if. That's a big if. So they're doing something that's very common in that there's, they are saying, all right, this is the principle behind this is the so-called high-intensity interval training. And they, they link to research showing that this high-intensity interval training is effective in losing weight, improving cardiovascular function, oxygenation, whatever. Um, however, I researched this pretty thoroughly, and actually um, I was surprised to find that you know, most of the studies that I could find actually do favor the efficacy of this interval training, of high-impact interval training. So the, the, the comparison is between doing a, say, a moderate-intensity continuous exercise versus intermittent high-intensity exercise, so basically working out harder for a minute and then, then at a lower level for a minute and then higher again for a minute or two minutes or four minutes or whatever. And apparently there are some things, there are, there are definite advantages to, to incorporating this high-intensity interval training into your exercising. It does cause some actual you know, physiological changes that are advantageous. It, 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 and probably what this is saying is that just having a low or moderate level of aerobic exercise doesn't really you know, stimulate the physiological response to exercise maximally. However, if you then go look at the studies... Um, for example, there was one study, and this was the one that I think was most often uh, linked to in, in the, you know, when I was researching this. This is a, a study published recently, that's the title of which is Superior Cardiovascular Effect of Aerobic Interval Training Versus Continuous Moderate Exercise in Patients with the Metabolic Syndrome. However, uh, if, you then, if you actually look at the study, the 
interval training had a 10-minute warm-up followed by four four-minute intervals and then with three, minute, uh, three minutes of, of active resting, they call it, in between. So you're still talking something like 37 or something, if I'm calculating that correctly, minutes of exercise compared to like 47 minutes of the of moderate continuous exercise. Not four minutes, right? I mean, you can't then extrapolate yeah. from that, from you know, doing, say, 30-something minutes of interval training versus 40-something minutes of continuous training, and then say, therefore, you can get those same benefits from just four minutes. No. I could not find anything to support that contention. That, that, that's the crux of it. It seems like yeah. they're, they're, they're setting up a, a straw man of sorts where, where they're saying that you know, on one hand, you've got this continuous moderate exercise, then you've got the interval training. I think it's clear that interval training is very effective and advantageous. Yeah. There's plenty of studies to show that, but that's not their core claim. For me, their core wacky claim is the whole four-minute thing, which, which you just blew out of the water because it's not – they're not doing four minutes. They've got the warm-up. They've got, what, three or four – a series of four minutes? That, that's not what they're claiming. I mean, over and over in that website, they're saying four minutes. It's just mm-hmm. four minutes, not multiple four minutes. And there was this one quote I got to read. It's such a, a classic straw man. They were discount. They were talking about how experts, so-called experts like doctors and and phys- real physical trainers, how they they just discount any new information with, with this. Th- this is a, a parody of what of what. They believe. They say, I do not even have to waste my time looking into anything that differs with my knowledge and beliefs because I know absolutely everything there is to be known about my field of knowledge. Therefore, anything that conflicts with my beliefs must be false. So that's that's their caricature, caricature of the, the mindset of doctors and, and physical trainers, and that's why they discount this whole idea of the four-minute. I mean, if that's a, a Nasty straw man. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, incredible. This is especially in this field. This field is constantly changing. There's constant evidence from studies right. that that are incorporated into what people do for their careers um, with tangible results. It's, this is right. not status quo by any means. Right. It's oh, yeah, absolutely. This is a very active field of research, and people are changing their opinions based upon actual evidence. Right. So they're yeah. rather than providing evidence. They're actually they're linking to studies and referencing a, a research base that actually doesn't support their core claim, and right. then they're just dismissing criticism from you know they're disparaging experts, so these so-called experts, and just basically dismissing their criticism as being closed-minded. Yeah, the other the other thing that's bothering me about this are these testimonials. That's oh, sort yeah. of a red flag as oh, far yeah. as I'm concerned. Is when you put up a bunch of testimonials to help promote your product, where where we know that testimonials are worthless when it comes to yeah. the scientific analysis of anything. Yeah. The other way I think that the literature can get misrepresented is if you if you look at some studies. And there are some studies that, that did very short durations of exercise, like eight minutes, I think, was, was one study. So I didn't see anything that was as low as four. And it does show that if you if you compare it to people who are doing no exercise, right. you know, and then you take people who do <laughs> like this go. interval training for some modest amount of time, like eight minutes, three days a week, they have what they they can find a slight improvement, a mm. small but statistically significant improvement, not a huge improvement, but sh- yeah, so sure, okay. Some exercise, even a small amount of exercise, is better than absolutely nothing. The bottom line is none of this supports this this notion that you can exercise for four minutes three days a week and get all the advantages there is to get out of exercise. And certainly 
none of that justifies this ridiculous $14,000 price tag for a piece of exercise equipment. Well, we're going to be joined now by Carrie, one of the skeptics, to talk about sexism in the skeptical movement. So let's go to that now. Joining us now is skeptic Carrie. Carrie, welcome to the Skeptic's Guide. Hey, guys. Thanks. And Rebecca asked you to come on to talk about a blog post that you wrote recently about your experiencing experiences and some thoughts from the Amazing Meeting 7 that we just had in July in Las Vegas. So tell us what you wrote about. Well, I wrote a little blog post that kind of ended up causing a little bit more of a stir than I thought about uh, Bill Prady's talk and just generally relating that to some attitudes I've noticed in the skeptical movement toward women and sort of trying to get at maybe some of the underlying things that keep women out of the movement. And Bill Prady, to let people know who weren't at Tim, Bill Prady was the keynote speaker who is the producer of The Big Bang Theory, an American television show. Just to give you background, I had never seen the show before, before the talk, so I was kind of coming into it cold. You know, I didn't really have much context about the show, and they showed this series of clips that sort of set me up to have the reaction I did to his later comments. And it just seemed to me that every clip that was shown in the presentation, in every single one of them, the, a woman was the, either the butt of the joke or a beautiful woman that one of the characters is trying to impress is just so far outside of the realm of intelligence that, that the, the character is that she can't relate to him at all. So in other words, like, you know, the sexy woman doesn't like the smart guy. That definitely is one of the core themes of that show. Although she's almost the straight person on that show, at least in the later se- seasons, because the the knowledge that the uh, the nerd characters come out with is ridiculously arcane. I mean, even a science enthusiast w- would find it incomprehensible much of the time, and it's deliberately so. What I'm trying to get at is, yeah, I'm not going to try and deconstruct a, a silly sitcom and think that it should, you know, jibe with the real world, but I just think it's sort of helpful in understanding some of the dynamics that create problems for for women existing in in groups with guys that sort of fit that category. And I think a lot of it comes from from that, that sort of idea that they're playing with in the Big Bang Theory that um, sort of quote-unquote geeky guys feel like women are these alien beings that, like, you know, in order to ever get laid, you have to learn the, the language to talk to them, and it's this one specific language that they think that if they can just crack the code and understand women, that they'll be good to go. I just think that that causes a lot of the issues that we have. Right, so it simultaneously stereotypes the geek and women. Absolutely. And do you want to say exactly what, what Bill Prady said? Oh, sure. And then later on in his, in his talk, he made this, this joke. He was, his general theme was about being a skeptic without being an asshole. And he gave an example of if you go into a bar as a guy and you're chatting up a girl and she asks you what your sign is, you should do a test and half the time explain to her why astrology is bullshit and the other half of the time 
just tell her she has pretty eyes Mm -hmm. and see how many times you get anywhere. (laughs) It was probably innocently meant. And as you know, he did respond to us with, with a note basically saying, he he could have reversed the genders. He, he didn't mean it as a sexist joke, which is fair enough. But it, to me, it indicates a lack of understanding of, of his audience. I mean, it, it felt to me and a lot of the women in the room that he didn't see us at all. Like, we, we weren't even there. And it just, it really felt excluding to a lot of us. Yeah, the the women in the audience definitely all seem to exchange glances in that moment and say, you know, actually, if a guy came up to me and said I had pretty eyes, I would ignore him and his empty platitudes. But if a guy were to start up a conversation about interesting research, that would be much more interesting and attractive to me. So what woman is this guy talking about? And I think we all had this idea of a the person that he might have in mind and it was what you're right Carrie when viewed in context with what we had just seen with the television clips and everything that it it definitely came across as um I only understand women to be this type of woman where she's not interested in science she's only interested in you know looks and shallower things I, I think we all kind of shared that moment where sudden, suddenly we felt like something other than the men. That's definitely the TV land stereotype, right? That's what you get. And I don't want to get hung up on the particular politics of the show. I just right. think that some of the some of the stereotypes in the show are indicative of what, what is happening in real life. Right, and right. in that sense, I think we can maybe learn from it and sort of use it as a mirror in a little, you know, as an exaggerated mirror of what's really going on and try to use that knowledge yeah. to, to have a discussion. I, and and I Bill agree. Brady Absolutely. has brought up the idea that it's not his job to present, a, you know, a fair view of scientists and it's not his job to speak up for feminists and for female scientists. Um, but I, I think that it's just taking the easy road out to ignore that segment of the population. And I think that so many other shows do a wonderful job of showing nerdy women like, like Mythbusters, you know, look at, even though it's two guys that started out, you know, the, the whole thing, you've got like Carrie who steps up and, and she's awesome. You know, she's nerdy and fun and artsy. She's pretty much everything. And she's a real person. But why don't we talk a little bit more about Tam itself, though? Because that's it's you know biggest meaning of the skeptical movement. You basically have skeptical culture uh, right there. What's it like from the female perspective? I, I, I would have thought that you know at this point in time with the skeptical movement that it would be a pretty uh, egalitarian, pretty open environment for women. But of course, I have the perspective of a guy so what do you what do you what do you guys think about the how do you feel as a woman in the skeptical movement at a meeting like tam i feel generally with the with the community and the the audience and everybody there i i feel pretty pretty equal and it seems like good things are happening and and we're moving in the right direction it seems to me and i mean i've only been to two tams so you know this i'm kind of a noob but it sort of seems like the programming is fairly entrenched, um, and it feels to me a little bit like a boys' club. And you know, like I said, 
I'm a noob. I don't, don't know the whole process or anything like that. But it seems like it's more difficult for women to get into the programming than men. And that may just be a function of fewer women being in the movement. But I'd like to see, you know, instead of, you know, one of the same old, same old guys up there giving the same, essentially the same talk year after year, which, you know, fair, to be fair, maybe some people come to see that. I'd, I'd much rather see some new faces. And, you know, I don't, I'm not saying I, I am advocating tokenism, but I would love to see some more women up there. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree. And I think that it's interesting where I, I don't, um, I certainly never feel as though I'm, um, put down because of being a woman at TAM. I always have a great time and I always get along very well with, as Carrie said, with the rest of the community that, that comes out. But, um, Steve, you know, you, you mentioned that you go and it seems all very egalitarian and very, everything seems, Fair, but um, I, I do think that part of that comes from being, uh, you know, a, a white male who is can see an entire conference of white males and not really notice that there's anything amiss. Once you, as a woman, like one of the first things I just happen to notice is that there's only one woman on the um, list of speakers, Jennifer Ouellette, and then Harriet Hall was on a. Uh, a panel, I think, and that was it. And, uh, and, you know, we're talking about sexism here, not, uh, anything else, but, um, every single speaker and on every single panel included was white. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, and, and, mm. you know, that's not actually representative of the scientific community, of the rationalist community. Um, there are so many other people there who are female, who are, um, black or um, Hispanic or Indian, um, you know, I I, th- I think that it's not. Of course, it's not a focus of Tam to to be diverse. Uh, I, I don't think that's anywhere near the top of their priorities. But I think that it should be in in the coming years. I think that it would be fantastic if they would um, start focusing on just being like the largest conference out there for skeptics yeah. right now, that there's this certain responsibility to, to do a good job of representing the community and presenting, um, a, an interesting mix of yeah. backgrounds and viewpoints. Well, in their defense though, I mean, you know, I happen to know that when the, they were putting together the speaker list for TAM seven, they asked me directly, they said, we want more women in the lineup for TAM seven for whatever reason this year, it just worked out that you know a lot of the women that they invited to speak couldn't make it. And they said, give us some names. Tell us some, some women so we can have a little bit more balance in the speaker list. So they were very conscious of that. They, they were going out of their way to do that. It just didn't work out that way this year. Well, that brings up a really good point, too, just about what we as women can do. And like you said, you know, just in recruiting and, you know, getting speaking up and saying, hey, this woman would be a really great speaker at TAM. Also, within the community, and a big part of what happened on my on my blog post was uh, basically a bickering match about what is how to be an appropriate woman in skepticism. And I just think that that does nothing to help us because all we, we are doing is 
basically saying there's one way to be a woman in the movement, and then automatically you're excluding any other type of woman than the type of woman you are. And that is horrible and damaging, and it, it, we just can't do it. And I know it comes out of a place of insecurity and a place of just knowing how you have gotten where you are and just assuming that everyone else should do the same. And I, it just, it, in the big picture, it doesn't help. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, and, and that was prompted by a blog post and it wasn't the only one. I saw a few where people would talk about, you know, the, usually the younger crowd that was starting to come out to TAMS because I think that every year we're getting a little younger and, and there's more, um, we are getting more diverse. You know, the community is starting to attract more people from alternative sort of paths, lifestyles. And I think that sort of freaked some people out. But it, I think it is something to be embraced because if you look at it, I mean, Sue Blackmore, I think, is a great example of somebody who does not come across as anything approaching conservative. But, you know, she's she's an awesome skeptic with some interesting ideas that could contribute to the skeptical community. And, and I think it's important that we not reject people like that. Rebecca, you mentioned the increasing diversity, and uh, I have a lot of hope for that in the future, especially I remember specifically this year they mentioned the, the percentage, just the percentage of women uh, that signed up for TAM was up from like every other year. Was it, it was like, was it 40%? I don't think it's quite to 40 yet. But it was the biggest. Yeah, definitely. I think every every year, I think. And also it's not, to me, it's not just the fact that there are more women in the seats, but that you see so many more women who are um, excited to be there and who are not say just a spouse who's been dragged along oh, absolutely. and in fact there were a number of women who I met who came up and said oh I had to come and I had, I dragged along my my husband you know and that to me was really cool do you think that there's any lingering sexism within skepticism itself I think there definitely is you know like we were saying I think it's kind of on the way out but I really tend to think of the women in skepticism problem as a social problem more than an intellectual problem or a how do we communicate better problem I think it has everything to do with how people have historically joined the movement and as internet and podcasts and different things like that create these online communities, I just think we're going to see more and more women come in. And I, I don't know. I, I don't think it's ever a case of men that are trying to keep women out of the skeptical community um, or anything like that. Do you feel that, that you were held back in any way or you think it's more of those kind of sort of unconscious, just like stereotyping type sexism that you see? Well, yeah, I mean, well, that's, that's an interesting way to put things because would you feel held back if someone just constantly told you that you needed to be both smart and pretty and nice all the time? You know, it's not this thing where it's like, oh, we're not going to read your blog because you're a woman or you're not allowed to do such and such because you're a woman. It's this, you know, it's it's a much more, um, a much quieter, slightly more insidious kind of sexism where you can respond to it by shrinking and going away, uh, which I think a lot of people do. Or you can respond to it by standing up and, and being a bitch. <laughs> uh, and, and I mean that in the nicest sense of the term. <laughs> um, 
And I, I think, I, I hope that that's what we're encouraging people to do is to stand up, point it out when it happens. And I, I don't know, maybe, I don't know if you feel the same, Carrie, but I feel that the more we point it out, like, no, that wasn't okay. You shouldn't say things like that. Now let's move forward. The, the, the better off we'll, we'll be. Well, yeah. And I mean, by no means should we sort of label these, you know, people that may say silly, offensive things sometimes as jerks or, you know, it's happened. Maybe you weren't aware what, what you were really saying there or, or how it would be interpreted. Let's move on. You learn from it and, and let's all just try to. And don't do it again. Yeah, exactly. Right. So there's, there's, as you say, it's almost, there's a softer kind of bigotry with that, but it still can have the, the impact of just making a, an unwelcoming environment for women at skeptical events like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we just need to keep talking about it. I think that's really the key. Just keep talking about it. Well, uh, it's been a very interesting discussion. Thanks for joining us, Carrie. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Carrie. Thank you, Carrie. It's been fun, guys. <laughs> Have a good night. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious. I challenge my panel of expert skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Did you say fictitious? Did I? I'm pretty sure that's not a word. I wasn't listening. Oh. It's a perfectly cromulent word. <laughs> All right. You need to stop using that as the go-to joke. Still funny. <laughs> <laughs> funny is funny. All right, here we go. Item number one. New studies find that most people grossly overestimate their ability to resist temptation. Item number two. A new study finds that daily use of kefir, a fermented milk drink rich in probiotics, is associated with a decreased risk of autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. And item number three, a new study finds that 70% of U.S. children are deficient in vitamin D. Evan, go first. Well, the first one, with new studies that find most people grossly overestimate their ability to resist temptation, I think that one is correct um, because I think people grossly overestimate a lot of things that have to do with themselves. I think I think we have bad perspective. We're not able to step outside ourselves, as it were, and take a real hard look at how we, you know, act day to day or what other forces are at work, what kind of hardwiring is going on in our brain that prevents us from being able to do these kinds of things. So I think that's uh I think that's correct. And then number two was the new study finding the daily use of kefir. K E F I R. A fermented milk drink rich in probiotics Blah. <laughs> associated with a decreased risk of autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. Wow. I'm not so sure about that one. That one, I don't know. It seems a little uh, opaque to me. And then the last one, the stu- a new study finds that 70% of U.S. children are deficient in vitamin D. Uh, I can believe that. Uh, we've gone from a from generations of drinking water and milk to drinking water, milk, sodas, juices, Sobe, and all these other crazy things that are out there and available. And I think, you know, I might be simplifying this, but uh, that would probably lead to that 
deficiency in vitamin D. I think that's correct. So I'll say uh, the daily use of kefir. That one is fiction. Okay, Bob. All right. The the first one people grossly overestimate their ability to resist temptation. Yeah, that just makes a lot of sense. And the second one, see, you left yourself some some wiggle room here with the milk because I th- I'm thinking that you're thinking that the probiotics is going to set off an alarm for us, but you're saying that, first off, you need to drink it daily. Secondly, it's associated with a decreased risk of autoimmune diseases. So it could be it could be very slightly decreased risk. Um, so I'm going to say that that one is, um, is science. This third one, though, 70% of children are deficient in vitamin D. 70? That's a lot of rickets. I'd, I'm not buying that. That just seems way too high to me. What, one of the classic responses to people that say, oh, you need multivitamins is that go to the hospital. How many people are there for vitamin deficiency? Not many because it's just, you know, vitamin deficiency isn't really a huge problem. But uh, that does say it's a new study. I'm still not buying it even if, if drinking milk is, is down. I mean, I never I – f- I hate milk. I never drink – I never take a, get a glass of milk. Um, I'll, I have milk with cereal. That's about it. Even as a kid, I hated it. I had to drink chocolate milk. I could not drink regular milk at school. So I'm going to say that one is is the uh, fiction. Okay, Rebecca? Yeah, Bob makes a good point. I originally thought that that one would be science because, you know, it's the Internet's fault. Children, they're staying inside. They're not getting any sun. It's To me, it's not a milk problem. It's it's a It's a sunlight problem. But that said, 70% are deficient. That's, that's a really high amount. Um, and while I do believe that there is a problem with, 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 with children getting appropriate levels of vitamin D, I don't think 70% would be that bad off. So compared to the others, like, um, yeah, People grossly overestimate their ability to resist temptation. I don't know about new studies, but I mean, I know that I think it was in Stumbling on Happiness. Um, the author writes quite a bit about how humans just kind of naturally lack this ability to place themselves in a future circumstance and to adequately gauge how they feel. And they always um, tend to misjudge their emotions and they always think they're going to act more logically than they do. Uh, and probiotics helping with arthritis, I can believe, um, because you know, yogurt, is there anything it can't do? Yeah. Probiotics in general are very good for you. So I, I can certainly see that they could help out with something like arthritis. So yeah, I'm going to side with Bob on this one and say that, 70%, 70%, too many kids there. That's fiction. Okay, so you all agree that new studies find that most people grossly overestimate their ability to resist temptation is science. And that one is science. Not very surprising. A couple of things interesting about this. So this is, a, this is a series of studies that shows, first of all, that people will, will underestimate their response to temptation, meaning that if they are trying to lose weight and they are in a situation where there's food, they think I'll be able to resist the food when in fact they can't. Um, or if they're trying to quit smoking they th- or whatever, or drugs or whatever it is they're trying to, to resist, uh, they 
think that if they're in that situation where they're tempted, they'll be able to have, they're very confident in their self-control. Usually they overconfident in their self-control. They also found that increased confidence in one's self-control in the face of temptation actually correlated with giving into the urges even more, more susceptibility <laughs> to those temptations, which, wow. which makes sense. Because, you know, it's overconfidence. They, they, they don't think – they're not prepared for the temptation because they think that, hey, I, I have the self-control. So it takes their, – their response to it takes them by surprise. And also, they're setting themselves up for failure. They're more likely to put themselves in temptation's way because mm. they're confident they're going to be able to resist it. Whereas if you have a more <laughs> realistic sense of your own co- – Tempta- you have susceptibility to temptation. Let's say you're trying to control your caloric intake, and you're, you're not going to buy the Twinkies and leave them in your house, right? Because you you think I, I won't be able to resist them, and late at night when I'm hungry. But if you, you avoid think, it, if you think you can, you will be able to resist it. You're more likely to you know to have the Twinkies in your house, right? Yeah, indeed. Or to go Sense. out with friends who are drinking, or whatever it is that you're trying to avoid. So, very interesting. Let's go to item number two. A new study finds that daily use of kefir, a fermented milk drink rich in probiotics, is associated with a decreased risk of autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. Evan, you thought this one was the fiction. Mm -hmm. Bob and Rebecca, you both thought this one was science. And this one is fiction. Ah. Good job, Evan. Yeah, smelled it. It Yeah, so. Smelled sour. (laughs) <laughs> right. right. <laughs> now, this is this is a claim that is in fact made for probiotics and specifically this this fermented you know milk product, this kefirs. But uh, there's no studies published that show that it actually modifies autoimmune diseases, specifically rheumatoid arthritis. I did a PubMed search, I did a Google search. I could not, I could find a lot of claims, but no studies supporting that whatsoever. There was a recent study, though, looking at the use of kefir to prevent diarrhea in children using antibiotics. This is actually a much more straightforward application of this. Now, when people use antibiotics, they often get diarrhea because the antibiotics kill off their intestinal bacteria, leaving them more susceptible to diarrhea-producing bacteria to overgrow because they're, they're not being crowded out by the more benign bacteria. The thinking with taking probiotics is that you replace the bacteria that's being killed by the antibiotics, and that will crowd out any harmful bacteria and prevent the diarrhea. Studies, however, have shown that generally probiotics don't make that much of a difference. That maybe, there's like weak evidence that maybe if you take the really robust high probiotic count products at the very beginning of a course of antibiotics, you may reduce your symptoms a little bit, but it doesn't really affect a long-term outcome. So again, there's this really equivocal mild effect from high-dose probiotics only when used very, very early. The problem is, and I know we talked about this with uh, Mark Chrislip, and he has a a quack cast that's dedicated to this topic, is that we have a complex ecosystem of bacteria, and just throwing in one or two or even three or four cultures of bacteria doesn't really do much for the ecosystem. It's got to recover on its own. What this study looked at was just, again, the use of this product for diarrhea in children, and it found no advantage. 
no effect from using this uh, probiotic product. However, the author said that there was possibly an advantage. If you just separate out the sickest children, they, there may have been a small advantage for them. But this did the study wasn't really designed up front to look at that subpopulation. You know, when you do retrospective subpopulation analysis, as it's called, it's tricky because you can often find, just by chance, correlations that look significant, but but they really aren't. So okay, okay, okay. Really, Move on. Really I want to I want to get to the last <laughs> one because I think you're wrong. What this really means is that. <laughs> As the authors say, we need to do another study, right? I love it when they always conclude. We need more money to do more, more money. studies, right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, but no effect. That no was effect. the bottom line. All right, get which to the last means, one because I think Which means that a new study finds that 70% of U.S. children are deficient in vitamin D is science. No, it is not. I read that article and it 70. said like 20%. I swear to God. Oh, it said like Rebecca. 20. I've read this. Things. I read this article. I read it earlier today, and it was like fifteen to twenty that were considered deficient. Oh, it's seventy percent are vitamin D insufficient. Exactly. Yeah, I shouldn't use the term deficient. From Reuters, inadequate vitamin D levels common in U.S. children. We're inadequate. We're inadequate. Yeah. Nine percent were classified as deficient in vitamin D. I should have been more careful in the terminology I was using because you are correct. It, it was 61% were vitamin D insufficient and 9% were deficient. I didn't realize they were making a distinction there. They just said in the title, I think they said 70% were vitamin D, had inadequate vitamin D levels, and I incorrectly translated See, that into See, that's deficient. why you should read news sources with better headline writers because the one I read said nine. Nine. Yeah, so I guess there were there were two fictions this week. I guess we have to call it. <laughs> I double win. <laughs> oh, I like yeah, I like I like that resolution. Yeah. Groovy. Yeah, so Bob you guys and I double, double, double fiction. Win. Right. Is that like is that like double jeopardy? On? No, I just need to be more. Usually, I'm trying to be very careful with the wording, and I screwed up. <laughs> yes, but, you have, Steve. You have a great track record, but yeah. you know, once in two hundred and two hundred eleven, you could screw up on these. Yeah. You know uh, what? Let's let's not lose sight of what's important, which is that Steve was wrong. That's true. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm sorry, Steve. No, I did. I caught up in the terminology. It was. I was sure you were pulling a sneaky one too, because I'm like, oh, seventy percent. Well played, Mr. Novella. Yeah, that's. I, I usually wouldn't do something that subtle. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But still, you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but it still is interesting that 70% of U.S. children have insufficient levels of vitamin D. That well, still is go. very high. I don't know if That's, I would have gotten, I mean, yes. it's not you, Rebek, if you actually read the study, but I don't know if I would have gotten Bob on that one. Just by just we'll never know. Will we? Be careful with the terminology. <laughs> um, part of this is because they, you know, recent evidence suggests that, they, that we needed to raise the level of what is a, a, a normal level. Mm. And the, uh, the recommendations, in fact, for how much vitamin D people should be getting was recently doubled from 200 international units a day to 400 international units per day. Oh. Yeah. No. They raised and the bar. That's not fair. Yeah, <laughs> you can't go raising the bar in the middle of the whole Re- thing. Rebecca was right, again, obviously because you read the article, that it probably has more to do with lack of sunlight exposure and not so much the l- drinking less milk. I Although, the internet. Yep, milk is a source of vitamin D because it's fortified with vitamin D. But you, it's hard mm. to drink. So you need to drink like a gallon of milk a day to get you know, all the vitamin You'd D vomit. you need from that. 
So, ah, um, you, but you only need about 15 minutes of exposure to sunshine in order to get the amount of vitamin D that you that you need for the day. So unchain the children, let them out of the basement is the moral of the story. Yeah, so the recommendations are um, to get a little bit more sun exposure, but to use sunscreen for any prolonged sun exposure, but brief sun exposure, you probably don't need to be obsessive about the sunscreen. And that it, kids probably just need to play outside more and, and be less attached to their computer screens and televisions and iPods and whatnot. Uh, so that is true. And this is there is a, a large body of recent evidence showing, you know, linking vitamin D insufficiency or deficiency to increased risk of heart disease, of hypertension, of um, even certain um, neurological disorders like multiple sclerosis, for example. Wow. This has led to sort of a reconsideration of, well, what is the optimal level of vitamin D? And it's probably higher than what we were previously recommending. So new evidence came in. The recommendations have changed. Also, I will mention uh, several months ago I did a science or fiction news item on vitamin D, and I used a a study. It was actually a, a, a fairly... A dense, you know, sort of basic science study looking at the role of vitamin D in the immune system, and then, uh, but I, what I wasn't aware of at the time was that the study was published by this group attached to this guy, Doctor Marshall. You guys familiar with this guy at all? Nine. No. The Author of the familiar. Marshall Protocol. It turns out it's probably bunk. That this is sort of this one dedicated group that. It has this notion that a lot of problems are caused by excessive vitamin D. And it really is, again, one of these minority um, on-the-fringe opinions that that really hasn't made its a convincing case to the scientific community. So if I had known that, I probably wouldn't have used that item because it does make it seem a little bit more dubious. You couldn't tell from reading the study because it's you know kind of a basic science study just about how vitamin D affects immune regulation. However, uh, Mark Chrislip did write a good review on the Marshall Protocol on Science-Based Medicine. So if you want to get the skinny on it, you can read his review. Yay, Mark. But it's, you know, anyway, it's, you know, you just read an isolated study, it seems perfectly legitimate, but you, you know, unless you put it into context, sometimes you don't know where the, where the authors, the researchers are coming from. Um, so good job, everybody. I guess you all went Yay! Yay! Maybe next week all three will be fiction. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> all depends on how fast we, t- we get We're sure to win that. <laughs> so, Evan, <laughs> hmm. it's time for Who's That Noisy? It is. Let's play last week's Who's That Noisy? It was a recording of a bottlenose dolphin. Oh, could you believe that? Wow! I, wow. Did, did anyone guess it's that? Crazy talk. No, nobody yeah, got. Yeah, I didn't it. remember I seeing s- anyone guess that one. I figured I was some marine biologist. I figured would chime in and say, "Oh, I know exactly what that is. I've heard that a thousand times." Nope, nobody huh. guessed it. You all failed. It didn't sound like Flipper, though. No, <laughs> it, it was it was a it was a non typical sounding dolphin. Yeah, about as non-typical I think as I could find, so that's why it made a good noisy. Okay, yeah, so it wasn't that that typical um, dolphin noise we're used to hearing. That's like right. the one sound clip I guess right, that we fl- always hear on TV. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, there, that's a mm. dolphin's. Maybe for this one they were cursing. <laughs> they were cursing, right? <laughs> 
Well, Evan, what do you have for us this week? All right, this week. Well, why don't I just, you know, cue it up and just let it play. Let's see what we have. Your birthday today. Daisy, this year you have to make a choice between two life paths. Second chances come your way. Extraordinary events culminate in what might seem to be an anti-climax. Your lucky numbers are... 84, 23, 11, 78, and 99. What a load of shit. Uh, there you well. go. If anybody uh, knows who that noisy is, send it in. Let us know. Good luck. Well, thank you, Evan. You're welcome. Uh, it's always interesting. Yep. So I'm going to do the quote this week since Jay isn't here. This was a quote suggested to us by listener Peter McCulley. This comes from the show Dexter, which, and I remember hearing this this line uh, on that on Dexter and noting it myself. It is a good one. This comes from the character Vincent Masuka, and he is a uh, a forensic scientist working for this, this uh, homicide department. And Masuka said, "Your victim was smothered. That's not opinion." That's science, and science is one cold-hearted bitch with a 14-inch strap-on. <laughs> Man, that's a little saucy. We're a family Especially podcast. Vincent Masuka. I know. Huh. Wow. I don't remember a Vincent Masuka on Dexter's Laboratory. <laughs> that's something else entirely. Oh, it's a serial killer episode. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Before we uh, wrap things up, I, I have a small announcement. Our forum at suforums.com is um, admined by one Beleth, uh, a.k.a. Doug, and today's his birthday. Oh, yeah. Happy birthday, Doug. Happy, Happy birthday, Doug. birthday. And good work. That's all. And we have started putting the more juicy uh, forum threads into our Twitter feed. So if you follow us on Twitter... And we we do announce things like exactly when the show goes up and five by five goes up, and you know sometimes we throw some other funny stuff in there and make other kinds of announcements. But we're also going to point you in the direction of some of the more popular and juicy forum threads. So so one more reason to follow us on Twitter, and and thanks uh, to the forum mods for helping us out with that one. Word. Don't forget about the Northeastern Conference on Science and Skepticism coming up on September 12th. And the SGU crew will be at DragonCon for Labor Day weekend if you're going to be in Atlanta, Georgia for DragonCon. And don't forget, you can buy our our latest uh, SGU uncut episode. Go to the SGU homepage and then from there to the SGU store and you'll see the uncut. We now have five hour-long uncut episodes of SGU for download. And don't forget the G-Hunters on YouTube. And it's unfortunate that Jay's not here because <laughs> to talk about the G-Hunters is now up on YouTube. It's in two parts, uh, each about 10 minutes long because the, the overall video is 20 minutes. Um, you can find it on our the Skeptics Guide channel on YouTube. Uh, Rebecca, you also linked to it from your blog and I linked to it from the Rogues Gallery. So, so check it out if you haven't seen it yet. It's pretty funny. And uh, if you like it, please email every single person in your your email address book and ask them to watch it as well. Absolutely. Get the word out. Well, thanks for joining me again this week, guys. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Daddy Jay. Bye, Jay. And- 
<laughs> and until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. Yeah.